Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's so good to see everybody today. And um, welcome to not only uh, the beginning of spring, but welcome to allergy season. And <laughs> hope everybody's able to press through um, accordingly and um, <clears throat> stretch out a hand to your neighbor and you know, tell them you're praying for them. Pray for me up here. I'm trying not to fall off the stage today. Um, but it is good to be here to worship God together. So, guys, we just want to say once again, uh, for those of us who have uh, friends and family who are uh, graduating um, uh, this coming week or in the weeks to come, can we give up one more time for our graduates? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Well done. Well done. Well done. And, um, we're excited about all that God has for you in the next season. So um, what we're doing today, um, if you are new with us today, my name's Rollin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and we um, are going through a series um, called Rebuilding the Altars. And for um, all of us here today, why we're here is to learn about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in heaven above, who came to the earth and walked amongst us as a man. And he came and performed signs, wonders, and miracles, giving testimony to the fact that he was, in fact, the living God. He went to the cross um, when he was uh, walking um, throughout his earthly ministry to but die for the sake of our own rebellion against God and our sins and to pay the price, the punishment that we all deserve against a holy God. And three days later, according to his promise, he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead to give forgiveness of sins and new life, eternal life to everyone who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him and believe in him and say, God, I want to honor you and worship you as you've intended, as you've created me to. And so when we're talking about rebuilding the altars, we're talking about building a life of worship to this holy God. We're talking about building a life that honors him, that lives a life that's worthy of him, and that gives him all that he's deserving of. And so uh, what we've been doing to do so is we've been going through the book of Ezra, which is an Old Testament book where uh, the Israelites were um, actually living during a time where they were sent into exile because of their sin um, to uh, Babylon and then ended up in um, Persia. And we're seeing them living a life where they've been living subject to oppressors, but are now being returned by God to their homeland so that they could worship him accordingly. Um, so today, when we actually pick up this series, we're going to be talking about rebuilding the altars in a new extent. Last week, we talked about the rhythms that God wants to establish in our lives, the rhythms that he wants to establish to help us to worship him both day and night, to actually press the reset button day by day to experience his mercies that are new for us every morning. Um, but today what we're going to talk about is really if we're going to build a life of worship to God, what types of things we need to overcome as represented by the scripture? What types of things that we see are adversaries to that actual life of building a life of worship to God? So um, today, if uh, you're taking notes, we're going to talk about it in two parts. Um, we're going to talk about rebuilding the altars in terms of identifying your adversaries to be building, rebuilding a life of worship. And then number two, what to do about these adversaries. Number one, identifying your adversaries to building a life of worship. And then number two, what to do about these adversaries. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your uh, goodness to us. And we thank you that God, you are for us, not against us. We thank you that you made that clear in Jesus Christ, that Lord, you came for the nations. You love the entire world and you draw the world to yourself through your 
your son. And God, we're asking that today as we know that even though we have adversaries in building a life of worship to you, God, we pray that we would see your greatness, your grandness, and that you are our ever-present help as we build these lives of worship, that we might truly live lives worthy of the calling you have on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today if you have your Bible, please open with me to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 is where we're going to start today. And we're going to start with this. When you endeavor to build a life of worship to God, you must be aware of the adversaries that come to destroy that devotion. In doing so, you can prayerfully define your relationships to overcome the derailments that would steal both your faith and your calling in Christ. What we mean by this is that the adversaries that come aren't necessarily always just spiritual. We like to relegate things um, to just a spiritual realm a lot of times, right? What's happening behind the scenes. But the truth of the matter is, is that the adversaries that come to us building a life of worship to God are the spiritual affecting the relationships that we have on a daily basis, right? And oftentimes it's the relationships, the spiritual working through the relationships that we have that can be an obstacle to us building lives of worship. However, what we see in Ezra is God gives us a solution for how to deal with these things, but we first have to identify them. So Ezra chapter 4, we start there. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house for our, uh, to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, and even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So what you see is that God is giving his people, through his word, a manner in which he wants to be worshipped, commands which are to be obeyed. As we've referenced before, whenever God's calling us to himself, he says, I want you to love me as I've loved you. And if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Now, what we see is that the Israelites, when they were coming back to um, their own land, they were amongst a people who were claiming to worship God just as they did. And they said, hey, listen, we're, we're intent on, you know, being spiritual. We're intent on um, them not affecting our lives too much. And so we'll make an appeal to them. We'll say, hey, let's worship God alongside of you. And we'll, we'll mix it up together, right? We'll worship God in the way that, you know, we've always been doing, and then we could be at peace with one another and worship God together. The problem with that, if you know anything about those who remained in the land, is that they were the first type of adversary that we see, which are called syncretists. And if you know anything about syncretism, syncretism is literally a mixing of two philosophies. It's a mixing of two faiths. And whenever we see that people are trying to <clears throat> build a life of worship to God, God wants pure and unadulterated um, um, devotion according to his command. 
The first adversary that you've got to understand will come in the way of building, um, I'm sorry, your rebuilding of worship to God is syncretism. These are human adversaries taken captive by the devil to discourage you from building a life of worship. They muddle the wisdom of the world with the truth of God and make the appeal that you can live in agreement with both. In this case, as well as the next, you actually may be your own adversary. I could be my own adversary with syncretism filling my own heart. Now, if you've ever um, wondered what this means, it means that there are people who are trying to have their foot in the world, one foot in the world, and one foot in the kingdom. Has anybody ever felt that way or seen that before? It's sort of like, I want to live according to the commands of God when I'm with the people of God, but when I'm with my friends who like to party, yeah, I, mean, I like to go buck wild. Anybody ever been there before? Okay, that's where I was back in the day, okay? It's sort of like when I was with the people of God, I was like, okay, let me be holy, you know? But when I was with people who didn't even know who the name of Je- didn't know the name of Jesus, I wanted to act like them, talk like them, cuss like them, relate like them, right? Just to fit in with them. That's a type of syncretism. And this is what we see represented here in the scripture. But what the people of God had to do is that they had to come to a point where they said, if we're going to build a life of worship to God, I've got to recognize that spirit as an adversary of mine. I've got to recognize that God draws a line in the sand and he says, I'm holy. And if you want to live with me, you've got to be holy as I'm holy in all that you do, not just sometimes, but all of the time. You've got to be pure. You've got to be set apart. You've got to be like my son. Martin Luther King Jr. actually said this. He said, in contrast to ethical relativism, Christianity sets forth a system of absolute moral values and affirms that God has placed within the very structure of this universe certain moral principles that are fixed and immutable that are fixed and immutable, meaning that it doesn't matter that the times are changing, God does not. It doesn't matter that the values of society are changing, God's commands remain the same. And it applies to all generations because he says that his word is eternal. Syncretism comes against that, but that's why we're having something like the Purple Book Challenge. And in the Purple Book Challenge or the Discipleship Challenge, what we're doing is we're making sure that the counsel that you both give and receive is in agreement with the word of God. Because ultimately, when we stand before God one day, we're going to be judged not according to the whims or the uh, trends of our culture. We're going to be judged according to his word. And so we need to be people who are living purely according to his word. Now, whenever you're dealing with syncretism, it doesn't just affect you in a moment. Usually, syncretism affects you over a period of a long, uh, I'm sorry, a long period of time. And it's almost something like uh, the, t- uh, the waves of sand on a beach shore that wear you down over time. What you see in this uh, Ezra chapter is that when the adversaries of the Israelites were coming against them, it said they came against them for a long period of time. It said they came against them and they did what? Discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, if you know anything historically, that was a period of about 14 years. That was a period of at least 14 years in between when the Israelites were returning to Israel to start rebuilding the altars of worship and when these two kings changed power. Now, what that means is is that many of us can start well in God. When you start and first get a touch from Jesus, your eyes are open to his goodness, his grace, you're full of conviction, right? 
right? You're full of zeal. You're full of um, ardent pursuit of God. But then over the course of time, the sifting of those convictions can be the things that begin to wear down, right? Has anybody ever seen that before? It's almost like a slow boil in a pot. Almost like, like if you're ever like cooking uh, crabs. I grew up in a uh, well, part of my life in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And if anybody's ever gone crabbing before, has anybody ever gone crabbing? Okay, it's sort of like when you put the crabs into the pot, right? You turn up the heat and at first they think they're just swimming around. It's like, oh, I'm back in water again. This is great. You know, but then, but then over the course of time, right, there's a slow boil that heats up and those that were nice and, you know, maybe had a blue tint to them begin to turn red. And then all of a sudden they start to scramble to get out of the pot. Why? Because they're being cooked to death. And then same thing, the same thing is that in our life of good devotion to God, it's over the course of time that syncretism can creep in. This is what was happening. It's not that convictions don't, um, aren't right or even God-centered at first, but it's over the course of time that you've got to be aware of maintaining your ground. Your adversaries will try to discourage you over the course of time with what the scripture says is fear-inducing, frustrating counsel. Fear-inducing, frustrating counsel. Why you allow syncretism in is because there's fear-inducing, frustrating counsel that's begin, uh, that begins to be given to you. What are some examples of those? Well, number one, it's like this. It has to do with when people give you counsel about relationships. Number one, fear. If you live a life of purity, you'll end up alone and without love in life, right? Did anybody get that type of counsel before you were actually married or, you know, trying to serve God? Hey, listen, you've got to go out there and, you know, do what you need to do to get a significant other or spouse, and you've got to be available to them in the ways that they want to be. Otherwise, you'll end up alone, right? That's a fear that's um, <clears throat> actually propagated. But the truth is, as MLK said, there's so much frustration in the world because we have relied on God's, lowercase God's, rather than God. Even as we talked about idols many times ago. We have worshipped the God of pleasure only to discover that thrills play out and sensations are in fact short-lived, right? The fear that's propagated is, is that you've got to lower your standards, lower your morals, go according to the way of the world to get love. But God's saying, hey, listen, those things eventually play out and the only thing that's going to stand is my righteousness. Do it my way and you'll have a blessed relationship. Another fear is if you put God and his kingdom first, there's no way you will, I'm, I'm sorry, there is, I'm sorry, there's no way, I cross that no way out. There is no way you will be able to live your best life, okay? How many people have heard Cardi B and uh, Chance the Rapper's song, okay? Living my best best life. Okay, you don't listen to radio. That's fine. All right, so here's the thing. It's sort of like, you know, it's almost become an anthem of sorts, right? Like, living my best life. You know what I mean? That's what everybody's doing when they're taking selfies and they're posting on Instagram, you know, and everything like that. They're all talking about living their best life, right? But Jesus said this, hey, listen, the way to live your best life is to learn to deny yourself and seek the kingdom first, because in doing that, there's actually true life. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 8, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How many people know that eventually selfishness and selfish living gets old? 
Okay, we don't have to just say that because we're in church. It's the truth, right? It eventually gets old, and it eventually gets like, is this it? Is this all that there is to live for in life? Jesus was talking about this. He says, for whoever would save his life, trying to live my best life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? He's saying literally that if you trade in syncretism your best life, you know what I mean, for the commands of God and denying yourself to follow and pursue the commands and the gospel and the ways of God, you'll in fact eventually lose it. And then finally, we have this standing in a uh, culture that's so syncretistic itself. We have this fear that if you stand for on biblical convictions, you will thought to, you'll be thought to be narrow and hateful. How many people have ever had that thought come into your mind before? If I actually stand on biblical convictions, I'll be thought to be narrow-minded and hateful. The truth is, in fact, that biblical convictions makes us more loving, merciful, and graceful in the face of sin because of the redeeming cross of Jesus Christ. That in the midst of sin, we're able to be more loving, more grace-filled, more merciful towards people, just as Jesus was on the cross and he said, listen, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus said that in the middle of being crucified because of the fact that he was setting an example for us to follow. And so what we see is over and over again, these adversaries come to try to bring discouragement through syncretism. They try to bring discouragement through mixing philosophies. But as MLK also said, by opening our lives to God and Christ, we become new creatures. This experience, which Jesus spoke of as the new birth, is essential if we are to be transformed nonconformists. Only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. He's saying, I need to be transformed inwardly, which is the gospel, right? Because he says the kingdom of God is within you. I set you free from your slavery from within so that you might actually have power without to fight the evils around you. And so he's literally saying, don't fall into the trap of syncretism over the course of time. He says, be set apart. Many of the discouragements we can, be, um, can literally be summarized, especially in our generation, by this. FOMO. Does anybody know what FOMO is? Oh, yeah, right? The fear of missing out. The fear of missing out, right? Isn't that what it is? It's like you always think that if I, if, if I hold to God and his ways, I'm going to miss something that's valuable, that's good, you know what I mean, that's beneficial, that's pleasurable in my life. And God's like, hey, listen, I've got the most delightful inheritance of any of the nations. And he said, I'd be happy to give it to you, my people, if you learn to worship me as I am, devotedly, unadulterated, in an unadulterated fashion. Elizabeth Elliot, who we've mentioned many times before, said it this way, when obedience to God contradicts what I think will give me pleasure, let me ask myself if I love him. Let me ask myself if I love him. When obedience to God contradicts what I think will give me pleasure, let me ask myself, do I love him? Now that's the idea and the adversary of syncretism that comes against us to try to steal your faith, your devotion, your calling in God. But there's another one, and it's actually the adversary. I'm, I'm sorry, another adversary, and it's actually the accuser. The accuser. 
Now, the accuser we're familiar with because we know that just as God is real, there's also a devil, Satan, you know, our adversary who comes against us. And he's known as one who accuses us before God day and night. And he doesn't just accuse us to God. He accuses us to one another. He doesn't just accuse us to one another. He tries to separate us from God in that accusation and separate us from one another. Part of what we wanted to do in this message is to encourage those who've been trying to live a worship, a life of worship of God, build altars of worship of God, um, to God, but have been discouraged. You've been accused over and over again in your head saying nothing that you do will ever be good enough to please him. Nothing you ever try will be strong enough to actually connect you to God. What we're here to remind you about is that it's already finished. It's already finished because of the cross of Christ. Because of the blood of Jesus, he says the righteousness that you have and that you're able to stand in is his alone, not yours, and you'll never be able to work your way to God. It's only through his sacrifice, his blood, his redemption, that you'll be able to be made right and guilt-free. And that's the good news. What we see in this Ezra chapter is that when they weren't able to syncretistically um, knock the Israelites off course, what they did next is they tried to accuse them. You read down in verses, um, going back to Ezra, you, go, um, you read down in verses 7 through 16, a letter and the changing of the kings was written to the kings by the um, adversaries in the land against the Israelites. And instead of trying to worship alongside of them or knock them off course, what they began to do was literally accuse them about their character, about their intentions, and about their purpose in the land. And that's exactly what the enemy does to us, right? It, he does that with us in our relationship with God. He does that with us us in our relationship with one another. Let's look just even very briefly at verse 12 of chapter 4. It says, this is a letter that they were writing to one of the kings. He says, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from, <clears throat> from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundation. See, these are the same people who at first were like, hey, let's just worship together. Oh, no? Okay, fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they're rebellious. They're wicked. <laughs> you know what I mean? Have nothing to do with them. Don't trust them, right? So all of a sudden, that which was syncretistic turned into accusation. And so all of a sudden, he's saying, listen, don't, believe, um, don't allow them to repair the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of records of your fathers. You will find that the book of records tells you and learn that the city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. So he just accuses, they're accusing um, the Israelites who are trying to build altars of worship to God over and over again. And what's the um, product or what's the result of this? It's that literally because of that, accusation, eventually their rebuilding of the altars of worship shuts down. And their rebuilding of the altars of worship in conjunction with their fellow Israelites comes to a stop. Verse 23 lets us know that. It says, then when the copy of King Artaxerxes, who was the king at that time, he's giving a response letter. That letter was read before Rahum and, the, and Shishai, um, Shimshai, the scribe and their associates. They went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God, which was the place of worship, that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
So the result of accusation, the the intention of accusation is that when the devil accuses you, he wants you to stop building a life of worship. He wants you to discourage you to the point where you don't think it's worthwhile anymore. It's like you've tried and you've gotten discouraged because the efforts you've made with family members or friends or even in your own holiness have come short of what you think is God's perfection. Has anybody ever seen that before or felt that way before? Listen, I've tried, but it's not measured up. And then you get discouraged and you get all these voices of accusation in you and you want to stop, right? It's like I give up. But the good news is that through the cross of Christ, he's constantly bringing you back to himself. He's constantly saying, hey, listen, mercies are new today. Try again. He says, my cross is sufficient for you. Try again. He says, I'm able to save completely Hebrews, those who come to me through me because I died for you. I always live to intercede for you. And I'm able to fight and fend for you, even when you don't have the strength to fend for yourself. He shuts the mouth of the accuser. But then what we see is that it's not just discouragement that the enemy wants us to have with just relating to God, but also relating to one another. Whenever you feel like you failed or somebody's offended you, he wants to accuse your brothers and sisters to you so that you stop building a life of worship with others around you. Has that happened to anybody before? It's like, man, I, I can't believe what they did. I'm, I'm not going you know, to worship with them. You know, and he's like, I quit. You know what I mean? I quit coming to church. I quit, you know, I'm coming to community group. Why? Because they offended me in that place. They don't know how hard it is, you know, to try to live for God in that place. And then they rebuked me. They corrected me. They told me that I could do something different. How dare they? I'm done. Anybody ever felt that way before? I sure have. <laughs> you know, I was like, how dare you speak the word of God to me? I mean, I mean, thank you. <laughs> thank you for instructing me in what's right, right? And what happened is, is that through accusation, the work that they were doing together to build the house of God came to, a shut, to, came to a halt. It came to a halt. So he comes to take out your personal devotion to Christ. He comes to take out the building of a house of worship to the Lord because of accusation against one another. We've got to resist it, and we've got to know what to do in the face of these adversaries. What to do in the face of these adversaries? Well, number one, the obvious answer is pray, right? Obviously pray. Pray, 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 pray. Easy answer, pray, right? Rick Warren said, the more you pray, the less you'll panic. In the midst of being adversaries that you face, the more you worship, the less you'll worry. Remember, we talked about that last week, right? As we exalt God, then our situations and our circumstances become, the problems that we have become smaller as God is enlarged, right? The more you worship, the less you'll worry. You'll feel more patient and less pressured. Now, when we see the answer to this, we see that 2 Timothy, when Paul was writing to his young disciple, he gave him specific instruction about how to deal with this relationally in um, building lives of worship to God. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20, he said this this way in instructing him. He said, now in a great house... Now, God's trying to bring, build a great house amongst his global church, amongst his people, even through local churches. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable, honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of, for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, in the midst of syncretism, In the midst of accusation, 
what do you do? He says, flee. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Now, let me tell you something. Youthful passions has to do with whatever age you are. Anybody, can everybody say amen to that? Anybody ever found yourself, you know, you, though you are many years past what you would call youthful, you still do things that you were like, man, what in the world was that? <laughs> Anybody at all? Okay. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So syncretism tries to get you into a place where you're just blending in, right? But what you do in response to that is you have an active, proactive pursuit of something else, right? You have a proactive pursuit of something else. If my shirt is stained because of a restaurant I went to, anybody have their favorite Italian restaurant in the city? Okay. And it's like, you were like going at it. And then all of a sudden you're just like going at it so hard that it was like, whoa, whoops. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then there's a deep stain in there. Right. And you're like, man, there's a mixture. This was not part of the original fabric. And so it's sort of like, it's like, you've got to proactively, right. Get some color guard and go at it to get it out. You've got to pursue purity, right? You've got to pursue righteousness. You've got to pursue joy, um, patience, peace, right? The things he's talking about. You pursue it not on your own though, not on your own. He says, along with, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So syncretism means it's mixed. A pure heart is what God's looking for from his people. And he says, if you're going to build a life of worship and a house of worship that honors me, seek these things along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And we surely know the difference, do we not? We surely can tell the difference. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant, sorry, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. See, this is the gospel, right? He said, even if somebody disagrees with you, be kind to them. Christians, be kind. Isn't that good news? He's saying, listen, even if somebody disagrees, even if somebody's pushing syncretism on you, be kind. Be kind. Don't be nasty. In fact, don't be like the world. When the world disagrees with somebody, they get spiteful and hateful. Do they not? But the people of God are called to disagree in kindness, in purity, in strength. And he says, what? <clears throat> you must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, to do his will. So what we're to do in the face of syncretism and what we're to do in the face of um, um, accusation is we're to call on the Lord out of a pure heart, not by ourselves, but with others who are doing the same, pursuing love, joy, righteousness, peace, right? With all these things. But you've got to see two pictures in your mind. You've got to be a discerning people to know who you're dealing with and how to deal with them. This is what the scripture is saying who you're dealing with, and how to deal with them. Can we put the first picture up? People will either be one of two things in your life. Either they will be a wet blanket to your faith, right? Imagine that. That's a fire blanket, right, to put the fire of God out in your life. Or they will, number two, be like this. 
That looks dangerous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Seems counterintuitive, but it's actually in God healthy, right? Putting somebody who's going to pour gasoline on your faith and say, blow it up, baby. <laughs> you know, let's go large and, ch- and charge with God. Let's run hard after righteousness, faith, peace, and purity, right? I need people in my life who are going to provoke me to love and good deeds. Isn't that what we need? This is what he's saying here. We have to be discerning to know the difference. That's part of what the community groups are for. Syncretism is an enemy of true worship to God. You want to build along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Those who do not call on the Lord out of a pure heart can dilute your devotion to God. Isn't that true? So what do you do? Because you have, will always have two types of people in your family, your friendship group, your um, work life, your neighborhood, who are always surrounding you of different types. What do you do? With the pure in heart, you build. With the pure in heart, you build altars of worship to God, meaning you link arms with them. You say, these are my people. I'm going to be identified by what they're praying for me and what they think about me and how they're encouraging me. But what about the rest? To the divided in heart, you minister. You don't disassociate yourself. You still love them. But you're not getting your identity from them. You see the difference. To the pure in heart, or with the pure in heart, you build. Build lives and build altars and build a house of worship. To the divided in heart, you've got to be able to say, I'm not taking my cues from them. Hello, I'm not taking my cues from those who do not love God. We've got to be able to say that. This is why he says in Psalm 1, blessed are those who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners or sit, I'm firmly planted in the seat of mockers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord and they meditate on that law day and night. And as they do so over the course of time, it will bear fruit in them. Bear fruit in them. Why? Because they're discerning enough to know. By the Holy Spirit, to the pure, with the pure in heart, I need to build my life. To the, with those with divided hearts, I need to love them, but minister to them. Not receive ministry from them. Making sense, everybody? All right. By the Holy Spirit and, <clears throat> and the fruit of people's lives. So discernment by the Holy Spirit and literally just seeing how people live and the fruit of people's lives, you must be discerning enough in your daily relationships to know the difference. Are people living according to a pure heart with God and should I build my life with them? Or are they living with a divided syncretistic heart, even in a heart of accusation? And do I need to, instead of building my life with them, minister to them? I need to be able to tell the difference. This is what Ezra was talking about. This is what the challenge of the Israelites were. And it's the same challenge that we have today. As we're living a life of building a life of worship to God, we've got to be able to tell who Jesus is. How do I know who he is? By his word. When does it get off? When I'm influenced by syncretism. Not in a moment, but over the course of time. And in the midst of that syncretism, if I've done well to stand in the midst of that, I need to also remember that I don't need to buckle to the accusations of the enemy. Because 
there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation, right? If you've been trying to go forward in God and have been crippled by accusation, he says, no condemnation today. Come back to the cross and there's no condemnation. Or if you've been living under condemnation and have never come to the cross, today's your day. Come to the cross and be freed from condemnation by the law of the spirit of life. But don't try to do this on your own. Do it with people of a pure heart who are set on building a life and an altar of worship in their hearts to God. Do it in such a way that you'll have the strength, not in of yourself, but in God's strength and with other people to minister to those with a divided heart so that they could also come in to that which God has for them too. And in doing so, not just in a moment, but over in the long term, you will be strong in the Lord and the strength of not your own might, but his might. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, worship team, come on up.